If you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23, Genesis 23, as we continue our study here in the book of Beginnings. Tonight we have a fairly interesting passage of scripture that if you look at it at first glance, it's kind of like, well, that's nice. What can I glean from Abraham's loss of Sarah? Surprisingly enough, I think there is a, there's a message the Lord has from what seems to be a sad but I think also a very hopeful passage. Because like it or not, every last one of us that's here in this room, lest the Lord comes through his church, we're one day going to take our last breath. But if you know the Lord Jesus, that's your best day ever. You're going to be home with the Lord. Would you join me? We'll pray. We'll take all of chapter 23 tonight, and we'll turn our attention to a couple of questions about Mormonism is where we'll start. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray tonight as we glean from your wonderful word, Lord, your truth. We pray that you'd speak to us, that you'd encourage us with these words. Lord, the record of a life well lived, a life that mattered. And Lord, it does cause each of us to ask that question what kind of legacy, what fragrance? Will we leave when we leave this planet? And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah, a full life, all the craziness of their initial journey, beginning at 75 years old and travels with Abraham to the land of Canaan and then down to Egypt and back again, all the things that they go through. And she's lived this full, this wonderful, this rich life that has certainly not been without problem. Just like every one of our lives in this room tonight, you're going to have some problems from time to time. Amen? And so Sarah died at Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron. And so the land of Canaan extended really all the way from what we would call uh, the foothills, if you will, of Mount Hermon in the north, all the way down to south of Jerusalem. So Hebron today, about 19, 20 miles or so south of Jerusalem would have been the same then. And there in this city, which still exists to this day, uh, is what's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. There's an actual cave system underneath the Mosque of Abrahim. It's uh, obviously a Muslim holy site now, but it was originally a synagogue. After that, it was a Christian church. And then under Saladin, the Muslim conqueror, uh, and during the time of the late Crusades, now, this building has been used as a house of worship. It is the oldest continuously used house of worship in the entire world. And underneath it is the cave 
that is going to be mentioned in our passage. And so the tomb of Sarah. And so Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, which is Hebron, the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And when you look at this, you you think to yourself, isn't Hebrews chapter 11 primarily about Abraham and his faith? And he's this great man of faith. And and unfortunately, I've had the very distasteful experience of being with people who are grieving over the loss of a loved one. And some, I will admit to you, I believe well-meaning Christian walks up. And they say something along the lines, well, we know where she is, we know where he is, and while that's true, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve our loved ones, and it doesn't mean that those tears aren't real, it doesn't mean that our souls aren't aching for the loss. Abraham is a man of faith, but he is grieved at the loss of his wife. And he, just like Jesus, begins to weep for her, And then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. And I want to remind you that Abraham is being very, very tactful here. He's actually being kind because the promise was made to him that all of the land, every bit of the land, not one bit of the land that he's currently in, didn't already actually belong to Abraham. But he had not been a faithful possessor of the land. And so parts of the land had ended up in the hands of others. And while it actually technically belonged to him, he was still acknowledging the fact that he'd made some mistakes in life. There's a lesson for us here. Acknowledge the mistakes that you make in life. I think all too often, it's as if we've bought the Western idea that admitting wrong is somehow showing weakness or, or perhaps lack of conviction or even for Christians, sometimes lack of faith. It's like, maybe I didn't hear from God. No, Abraham's simply saying, I, I'm going to ask these guys, this land actually is technically already mine, but they possess it and they possessed it because I was a knucklehead, so I'm going to ask for it. And actually, he's going to go so far as to pay for it. That's the right thing to do. Sometimes Christians default to the wrong thing to do because we take a hyper-spiritual view of something. We, we, we elicit this, this almost false faith that says, I've never made a mistake in my life. It, it takes a monumentally strong Christian to be able to say, I messed up. Willing to admit our faults and our weaknesses. Transparency, I think, is a very effective tool in letting people understand Uh, that we're in this battle together. I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And remember at that day and time, there was, especially amongst the Jewish people, they they buried almost immediately. Um, Arabs, Muslims still do to this day, almost the same day if possible, because they're warm Mediterranean climate, Uh, the speed with which the body would begin to decompose was very rapid. It was a very unpleasant thing. And so people wanted to be near, but not so near uh, as to have the obvious, which is a a grave site was also not a very pleasant place to be. 
And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, Hear us, my Lord. And I want you to notice, as you look at this, notice the reputation of Abraham. They actually call him Lord. This is their land, but in their land, they're calling Abraham Lord. They have respect for him. He conducts himself before unbelievers. These are unbelieving people. These, these men, these rulers, who were no doubt at the city gate of Hebron, also known as Mamre, as they were there, they understood that Abraham was a man to be reckoned with because he had a standing before God. Do you have that type of reputation? Do people who disagree with you actually still honor you because you have such great character that they honor the character even though they may not agree with your view of who God is? That was the case for Abraham. His reputation was spotless by this time. Even though he'd made some mistakes, he'd managed to clean it up. He managed to live before them in such a way that they addressed him as Lord. They considered him a, a prince. You were a mighty prince among us. Barrier dead in the choicest of our burial sites. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. It was considered a, a grave breach of hospitality then and now, actually, in the Middle East. There are certain things you just don't mess with. And the burial of a loved one was one of them. And Abraham was afforded that opportunity. And so they're, they're willing to give him a place. And then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, of the sons of Heth. They've called him Lord. They've said you are a prince. And he bows down to them. This is being to the Greeks a Greek, to the Romans a Roman. This is a man who understands the, the wonderful opportunity we have to take that lower seat at times. To just simply say, look, I'm in your village, this is your place, this is your town, and even though you've honored me, let me honor you. It goes a long way to opening the door to be able to speak into people's lives. The vitriol with which our political discourse is being carried on right now, I, I don't believe does anyone a bit of good. It just simply causes people to constantly dwell in a sense that a major anger eruption is about to happen at any moment in time. And Abraham knew that if he couldn't have anything else, he could at least have his reputation in hand as he's dealing with these pagan people. And he spoke to them saying, if your wish is that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with me, meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, and let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. And so he turns his eyes to this cave, this place where he had previously built an altar, this place where he had worshipped the Lord. It was a place that was sacred to him. And how Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, and all who entered at the gate of the city, saying, and just to put it into a cultural context, 
most of the business deals of the day and time in which Abraham lived all the way through the times of Jesus was done at the city gate. It was a common place where people passed. And in fact, very often, if you made a covenant with someone, one of the places that the two exact copies of the covenant could be nailed was to the gatepost of the city. And then once it was fulfilled, then both pieces would be taken down, they'd be torn up. And so it was really like, once you come to the boardroom and we'll meet here, and the elders of the city sat at the gate because people would have to come and go through the gate of the city. And in fact, if you go to the Canaanite city at Tel Dan, which is in the north of Israel, a place that we travel when we go there, um, there is actually a gate called Abraham's Gate. It's believed to be 3,800 years old. That's made out of mud brick, but it is just around the corner from a very large Canaanite city or a Canaanite city gate, which was normally a double 90 degrees. And so you'd come in, there'd be a 90 degree turn immediately, then another 90 degree turn. And that was a way to keep invaders out. And so people sat outside of it so they could see who was coming in. They could judge the character. Very often the city rulers would sit there. And so if someone wanted to come into the city, they kind of had to pass muster. And so Abraham's saying, well, let's do this right. Let's go down. I want to keep my reputation intact. Let's do this the way we would do this for anyone and everyone. Let's sit at the gate of the city. And so he calls uh, Ephron there, the son of Zohar, and, and they begin these business negotiations. And notice what he does. He says, I'll pay you full price for it. He doesn't try and haggle with them. He doesn't try and get it at a bargain. He's going to say, look, I'm only going to use it for a burial place. He is honoring both Sarah's memory and he is honoring the Lord whom he serves by saying, look, I don't want anything for free. I'll pay full price rather than stain the character of myself or the Lord whom I serve. It's an important part of the way that we work in this world. And I think we need to recognize that when we're dealing with people who don't know the Lord. I can tell you, having been involved in in construction-related things in the church for 30 years, some of the most underhanded, despicable, absolutely, unbelievably illegal things have been done by people with fish on their business cards. And it is a stain on the name of the Lord Jesus and on his bride, the church, of whom we are all part. So a little word from your pastor. If you are a believer and you have a business and your business cards have anything to do with the Lord Jesus and there's a scripture on there, you better remember exactly who it is you serve because the Lord sees that fish. You should be spotless in your business dealings. You should pay fair wages You should pay overtime, you should pay taxes, you should start the job on time, finish the job on time for the price that you said you were going to finish it, and if you can't get it done, you better pay somebody else to do it, because the reputation of the Lord rests on how you perform. Frankly, I I hate getting involved in those things to where, yeah, the guy said he was a brother, the woman said she was a sister. And it's just a sales tactic. We should never use the Lord's name 
as a way to get business, ever. Ever. Just do great business. Let people know you're a Christian. And now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth and all who entered the gate of the city saying, No, my Lord, hear me. And I'll give you the field and the cave that's in it. I'll give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I'll bury my dead there. Abraham doesn't want anything from free from people of the world. Abraham's not looking for a bargain so he can say, look what I got from the people of the world. He said, I'd rather pay full price. And Ephron answered Abraham saying, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? He's basically saying, look, we both have plenty of money. I don't want your money. I don't want you paying for it. In essence, what he's doing, and you can almost see it here, is he's trying to set up a situation whereby Abraham would be forever beholding to someone of the world. He's basically creating a situation where there would be an unequally yoked relationship. He said, look, I'll give it to you. Abraham knows this. He sought the Lord. He's been wise. I can tell you I've ministered to an awful lot of people who have listened to things like this and they bought the line and they took what was offered to them and they are forever linked to someone who does not know the Lord. They owe them a debt of some kind. And it doesn't work out well. Because when you have that type of situation, you're prone to compromise. Abraham's already compromised. He's learned his lesson. This is a beautiful picture of a man who got it. I I know where this road goes. I'm not going there again. I'm not going to compromise. I would much rather pay you full price for it. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. And so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, the cave which is in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went to the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. An interesting story. And it contains within it a few little additional elements that I kind of want to highlight for you. Solomon, when he authored the book of Ecclesiastes, made the statement, he said, a good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death, 
than one's birth, it really matters what kind of lasting legacy you leave. You can mess up, but you have an opportunity as a child of God to clean that up so that when you leave, people remember not the things that you did that were wrong, but they remember exactly what you did in your life later in life. I think that's kind of the story of an awful lot of people, actually. Because most of us don't live perfect lives, amen? Anybody in here messed up? Don't answer. Chances are that every last one of us has a story of some place that we've gone, something that we've done, some behavior that we've undertaken, some habit that we have, something that has shamed the name of the Lord. The beauty is here that Abraham gets it right towards the end. Sarah gets it right towards the end. And they're going to leave a name that is greater in death than it was in life. And that is a beautiful thing. Because truly, your reputation at the end of your, at the end of your life, you want to have be the best it could ever be. I see too many people that kind of stumble over the finish line. You know, they're, they're going along, they're serving the Lord. And man, the last several years of their life are spent just messing up. And it's very sad. Because then their legacy is not one that's good. Their legacy is one that's sad. And, and people, instead of missing you, are kind of glad you're gone. Amen. You want to leave a legacy that is a good one. We have the death of Abraham's princess. And if you remember, um, she is actually called by that name back in chapter 17. She is Abraham's princess. This is such a beautiful way for us to understand the relationship between the two of them. And the thing that always sticks out to me when I read this passage, when I look at the the life of Abraham and Sarah, there's a lot of reasons for us to think that that wouldn't be the case. Kind of like they tolerated each other. You understand what I'm saying? That's kind of like, yeah, he's he's my old man kind of thing. Yeah, that's my old lady over there. You ever heard people talk like that? Just so you know, you won't ever hear me talk like that about my princess. Because that's my princess. Amen? That we need to remember that, that we have an opportunity to acknowledge the gifts that the Lord puts in our lives. And Abraham's doing that here at the end of Sarah's life. He, he's giving honor to her. And when you look through the New Testament, you find the book of he, Hebrews that. Sarah is also listed as a heroine of faith. The apostle Peter names her, names her as an example of a wife that you could follow, you could model. There in, in chapter 3, Paul uses her in the book of Galatians to illustrate the grace of God in the life of a believer. That's a pretty strong heritage, isn't it? But Sarah wasn't perfect. It just goes to show you this very simple thing. What God is really looking for us is to just do better. God wants us to improve. He doesn't want us to repeat mistakes. And as much as we saw in Abraham and Sarah's life, there were some repeats 
they finally got it. And they got it right. And they lived a very long time doing it right. Living their lives in a way that honored the Lord. And so we see Abraham very sorrowful over the fact that his, that his bride is gone, his princess is gone. He misses her deeply. That's a sign that he really loved her. We kind of questioned initially, you know, does this dude actually love Sarah? He made some pretty poor mistakes. They, they were monumental at times. But it's very clear that Abraham's tears here are real. That he deeply loved his bride. And he shows that love. Actually, these are the first tears recorded in all of scripture. The tears of Abraham for Sarah. It's a pretty sweet, pretty poignant moment. And it's interesting that we find tears all throughout the rest of scripture until the Lord finally in Revelation 21 wipes them all away. Amen? Ah, I can't wait for that day. You don't, you don't want to go to movies with me. I cry. It's just the way I am. Judge me if you want. I don't care. There, there's, I believe the Lord has given us the capacity to be able to express our feelings. And I think it's important for us to do so. He, he didn't make us able to cry so that we could try and just repress them all the time. And, and though it may not always be appropriate, I think for the most part, most tears generally come from some place that's soft in your own life and in your own heart. It's also interesting to me that Abraham didn't have the picture that we get in the New Testament about what was coming. He, he, it wasn't like there was, a, there was a tremendous amount of information contained uh, previously in the book of Genesis that we look at and so say that Abraham knew. He was trusting that whatever happened once Sarah took her last breath, that God had it under control. Amen? Because he, he's trusting the Lord. You know, he, he wasn't like he could pull out Luke 16 and go, oh, there's going to be a place named after me called Abraham's bosom. He, he didn't know that. And so, as you might think, there, there were some tears, maybe even a little bit of uncertainty, but it was not like the tears that we find in the book of Job. The death of the wicked is a very, very different thing. And you can read Job chapter 18 if you want later. But as, as we sorrow when these things happen to us, that's why the book of Revelation speaking about those who are going to die in the very last days, the blessed are the dead which die in the Lord because they rest from their labors and their works do not follow them. Anybody looking forward to the day when you don't have to work in heaven? Uh, that's what scripture promises. You can read it it's in Revelation fourteen thirteen. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. So in one sense, Abraham is grieving over the loss of his princess, but at the same time he's saying, I'm trusting God with this. It's the very picture that we have, of course, in the New Testament. That's why Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There in 2 Corinthians 5. That, that we do sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow in hope as believers. There in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We, we sorrow differently. 
There's some lessons to be learned here. There's a right place for sorrow. There's a right place for missing those who have gone before us. But we also have to have the right type of hope that goes along with that. And that's a balancing act. Sometimes uh, the waves of grief come and people are overwhelmed by sorrow. And we as the body of Christ should be there to come alongside and comfort. It is a gift to, to stand in with the living who are still here to offer comfort. It is a blessing to be able to, to cry with people. You know, I've had so many opportunities in, in my life as a pastor to be in the very place that no one in their right mind really wants to be. It is hard. It is very difficult to sit with people who have lost someone that they love, especially when that's a child. You know, some of the most agonizing times in my ministry experience have been sitting with parents who have lost their children. I'm, I'm telling you, there are no words. There aren't any. There, there aren't any words for that kind of grief. But you can sit and cry with them. And you can hang on to them while they're crying. And you can remind them that the Lord is the one who ultimately is going to have to to fill that hole because it's huge. And so be a good griever is my counsel to you. Ask the Lord to give you great wisdom. If you if you find yourself in that situation to where you know someone or maybe it's your own family, be a compassionate good griever. Come alongside and let the Lord work that work of weeping in your life to where you can just love on people who simply need to hear that God loves them. There's some additional things, some lessons here. Abraham's testimony here in these in the first six verses is very, very, very clear. He's got a stellar testimony. And I pray that we have a stellar testimony. As I shared with you, his business practices, the way he conducted himself in the public square, the, the, the things he was known for were so clear as people, people looked at him and they said, Lord Abraham. Didn't call him God. They just said, you're a ruler and we can see it. It's evident in your life. You're a prince among people. We can see it. It's evidenced in your life. We need to have that same type of of persona in this world. Too often, the church is known as just kind of a bunch of bitter people who believe some very difficult things. And I think sometimes we shame the Lord in the way that we conduct ourselves in the public square. I had a, had the opportunity people come and say, well, will you, will you sign on my jury duty thing that, you know, that, that I've got other things? No, I'm not going to lie for you. <laughs> God wants you off jury duty, you'll get off jury duty. If he doesn't want you off jury duty, go serve and be a believer. Stand in the court. The first time you tell them you love Jesus, they're kicking you out anyway. Anyway. 
you believe the Bible's true? See how far you get in the jury pool. <laughs> but you don't have to be deceptive about it. You can say, I would love to serve on the jury duty. On jury duty. But tell them the truth. Abraham was a righteous man, and you could tell. His tactics were righteous. The way he conducted himself in verses 7 through 16, you can see it. The final price, the way he goes about it, he takes advantage of no one. He's willing to pay full price. He's not saying, you know, well, I'm, you know, I, I believe in God, and you know how it is. We don't, you know, because I give so much money to the church, you know, can I have a deal? No, he doesn't want to shame the name of the Lord. And so he says, I'd rather pay full price and keep my, keep my rec- reputation intact. So he uses great tactics in the world. There's a little bit of a biblical problem here, and I think I can probably clear it up for you. This is one of those so-called contradictions that exists between Acts chapter 7 and this chapter. Because in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, as he's preaching this message... Um, says that this, this field was in Shechem. Shechem is, they're about 60 miles apart. So Shechem is modern-day Nablus, which is in the West Bank in the north, uh, adjacent the Sea of Galilee, and Hebron is in the south, south of the city of Jerusalem. So how can it be both? How can, how can those things be reconciled? And if you look at these passages of scripture between Genesis 50, it says he buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which Abraham bought as a possession. And in Acts chapter 7, it says our fathers were carried over into Shechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought with a sum of money from the sons of Emor uh, of Shechem. Probably the same as Hamor, by the way. Joshua 24 says the bones of Joseph, uh, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, were buried at Shechem. And so there seems to be a contradiction here. So what's going on? Some people say, well, it's just simply two different burial places. And it's talking about two different things. Because remember that once Sarah dies, Abraham meets Keturah and actually has six more sons. So there is actually an additional family. It's probably likely that he purchased a field for her. It's also true that he did go back to Shechem. But there's an interesting thing that happened in, in the life of Keturah and her sons as they lost possession because of the Hittites coming in and seizing the land that you find out in the book of Judges, they lost that land and were kicked out. And then about 85 years after Abraham's death, Jacob comes back into the area of Shechem and he buys that same field back. So it's quite probable that actually both things are true. So sometimes a simple glance at scripture seems to indicate there's something that's a little fishy there. But if you study the history of the children of Israel and you really dig deep and you're a Berean, you very often can find out what's going on there. And so it looks like they purchased a second parcel of ground for his second family in the region of Shechem. And so they had one, lost one, bought another one, and they also still had the peace in Hebron. And so today you have the tomb of Rachel in one place and you have the tomb of Abraham in the other. And so both are actually, I believe, both are actually true. The final thing that I want to share with you as we kind of wrap this chapter up. Abraham's tomb is not his eternal home. This is one of those questions I get asked all the time, you know, because people ask me, you know, well, is it okay if, if I'm cremated? 
Is it, you know, should I have a coffin? Should I do, you know, we get, we get all worried about what happens to our, our remains. And I, I actually like that word because all that's going to be left of you is the remains after your spirit leaves the tent that Paul calls your earthly body. That's it. This is not me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. I don't have to keep this for all eternity. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, as he writes about uh, those resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says there in verse 35, he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, you, you sow, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Seeds basically have to die before you can plant them. If they're still green, they'll die if you plant them in the ground. They have to die first, and then they're planted. And what you sow, you do not sow the body uh, that shall be, but a mere grain, and perhaps a weed or some other grain. But God gives a body as he pleases each seed to its own body. And because we're going to be planted after our spirit is gone, the body that you leave behind is basically the same dirt from which we have come. And so whether that's cremated dirt, blown up dirt, dirt in a box, or dirt in some other form, it's nonetheless dirt. So every single place that someone's body lays, though it is a place for remembrance, it is not where they actually are if they know the Lord. Amen? We, we have a home in heaven. We have a mansion prepared for us in heaven. The, the victory that we have because of what Jesus Christ did, Jesus conquered death. He took away the sting of death. He took away the pain of death. Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 15 gives us this picture. And because of that, that victory, Abraham ends up kind of at the end of his life. The only place that he owns in this whole world is his grave. It's like at the end of our lives, really the only place that anybody's actually going to be able to associate with you is the place that your bones rest for a period of time until they are, are, are dealt with by the process of decay. But Abraham actually owned the whole land, but this earth was not his home. And you're going to get a new body, and that new body is going to be suited for heaven, and I'm praising Jesus for that, amen? Amen. So if you've got some physical ailments right now, I can tell you those are going to get fixed. Because Paul said the the new body's not like the old one. You know, mine served me well. I'm grateful to the Lord for the health that he's given me throughout my life. But I can tell you, as you get a little older, you kind of start, you you, you wake up, it's like, okay, that's not quite moving the way it used to. not sure what's going on there but you know when you have to start telling your feet which one are getting out of bed first you know you're getting towards the it's like go look we can't take any of this with us it all stays here the lord's going to give you a new body suited for heaven that's why we want to be investing in things eternal Missionary John Patton, who landed in the New Hebrides, which is down by New Zealand, island chain down there. The early 1800s, he actually was ministering there in the mid-1800s. He was born in Scotland. 
was a missionary for all of his life, strong advocate against slavery and kidnapping people from New Zealand and Australia and using them for forced labor. He's just an incredible, incredible guy. Three months after his arrival in the islands, his son, Peter Robert, was born in February of 1859. Nineteen days later, he dies. His wife, Mary, dies almost after that by less than a week. And so he buried his wife and he buried his child right close to their house, which is on this bay called Resolution Bay. And because the natives of that island were actually cannibals, he slept every single night by the graveside for six months so that they wouldn't be dug up and eaten. A reason that strikes me here because he said, I, I would have gone mad had I need to stay another week next to that lonely grave because they were not there. Death is a release for those of us who love the Lord. And we can weep over the sorrow that we have for those that have gone before us. But we've been born again, as Peter says or in First Peter chapter 1, to a living hope. Amen. Not a living death, because Jesus was raised from the dead, so shall we be. Titus actually, Paul writes to Titus and calls it a blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and King. And so we need to to keep that in mind. That fragrance that we leave behind should be the life that we live for the Lord. And what kind of monument you have really ultimately doesn't matter. If someone builds you a nice one like they did for John Patton, praise the Lord. Uh, If yours happens to be an urn on a mantle, praise the Lord. If it is something in between those two things, praise the Lord. Because one day you're going to stand alive on this earth and see your Savior face to face exactly as Job declared. He knew that truth. And so I just would encourage you, make sure that the fragrance you leave behind is one that people can remember the Lord by. Say, oh, that was a whole lot like Jesus. That was a bunch like the Lord God. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Pray now that you would seal these truths that are contained in it to our hearts and our minds. We look forward to our time as we Uh, unpack some theology and so god we bless you pray that you would bless us now with your presence even as we answer some questions in jesus name amen